Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. This episode is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligned our values of inclusivity and diversity in the legal profession, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Welcome back to another episode. This week we've got quite a psychedelic brew for you. Almost contraband, depending on who you ask and on the purposes of why you're taking it. You've known this brew by many names. Mary Jane, Hash, Joint, Marijuana, Cannabis... The list goes on. But did you know that this brew is the latest hot topic of the law? With legalization of recreational marijuana happening in countries across the world, cannabis-based wellness products like CBD taking the market by storm and the increasing scientific evidence of the positive health benefits of cannabis, the regulatory framework of cannabis is being reconsidered. Which is why today, on 420 World Cannabis Day, we've decided to sit down with Robert Chappie to help us hash out the latest rules and regulations surrounding cannabis. A life science and cannabinoid regulation partner at INS and founder of the first cannabis law department in the UK, Robert helps us break down the different cannabis sectors, explain the societal attitude change towards the drug and the consequential booming commercial scene in the European market, and also to highlight the novel UK path to cannabis regulation, especially in light of COVID and Brexit. Outside plants, we discuss the importance of personal branding and taking well-measured risks in one's career development. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. morning, Rob. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Max. Thanks for having me. So before we jump in, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Robert Jappy. I'm a partner at INTS um, in, in their London office, and I specialize in life science regulation um, with a particular focus on the, the legal cannabis industry. So uh, I spend most of my time advising CBD and medicinal cannabis companies on all the sort of day-to-day regulatory issues that they currently face. Legal cannabis industry, also known as kind of cannabis law, what is it? How, how would you summarize it? So, um, you, you know, we always thought that cannabis was divided into two parts, medicinal and recreational. But in fact, it's become very clear in the last few years that there's three very distinct sectors. So you've got medicinal cannabis, which is very highly regulated, very pharmaceutical, and uh, the Home Office legalized medicinal cannabis in the UK in uh, the end of 2018. So you know, it's been around for a while. Longer than that, though, is there is this this section in the health and wellness area, which um, most people know as CBD. So CBD is a cannabinoid from the, the, the hemp plant. And CBD has a, a host of wellness properties and that sort of thing. So it's become a very, very interesting industry, which is growing very quickly. Um, and then finally, you've got um, the third section, recreational or adult use cannabis, as I prefer to call it. And that's obviously not legal yet here in the UK or anywhere in Europe, in fact. So um, my practice uh, involves the, the two legal areas as, as these are really big growth areas for, for, for companies that are doing um, very innovative things. 
So what is a cannabinoid? So the, the cannabis plant is made up of um, different compounds. So there are more than 100 different cannabinoids in the cannabis plant, and each one has their own properties. The one probably everyone knows the best is THC. You know, that's the good stuff that gets you high. And then CBD has become very popular in the last few years because it has a number of health and wellness qualities, but it doesn't have any psychotropic effects. So it doesn't get you high and it's non-controlled um, under the Misuse of Drugs Act. So this CBD industry has sprung up in the last few years um, as people sort of access these health and wellness benefits from the plant without any of the euphoric psychotropic effects. And why is it, because you've talked about the health and wellness area of cannabis being around for a long time, longer than, say, the medicinal area. However, in recent years, we've seen what, as you said, the prominence in CBD. So what is causing? Is it that CBD is a recent discovered cannabinoid or is it the recent discovery of the health benefits that CBD has to offer? Or is it more generally societal acceptance of the health benefits of cannabis? So, so in the UK in particular, 2001, the misuse of drugs regulations were introduced and this created a licensing regime for the cultivation of cannabis here in the UK. A lot of people don't realize that the UK is one of the biggest exporters of legal cannabis. So a company called GW Pharmaceuticals obtained some cultivation licenses more than 20 years ago. And, um, you know, they were the, the first movers on this. As people have become more aware of this licensing regime, farmers started to apply to um, cultivate cannabis or cultivate hemp here in the UK. And this has sort of happened across across the, the North America, across Europe. And hemp cultivation is is big business because the hemp plant, which is a, a genus of the cannabis plant, has a wealth of you know uh, applications, hemp creeps, fibers, uh, materials, but also people started to realize you can actually selectively um, extract cannabinoids from the plant and, and then you can start to research what these, these cannabinoids have in terms of health and wellness properties. And that's what's happened. And so probably about 2014, 2015, a few early movers suddenly realized, hey, you know what, there's, there's, there's maybe a, a really good industry here. And so you had six or seven small companies pop up who started selling CBD here in the UK. And since then, it's just completely taken off. You know, most people will now be aware of CBD and the products that are available. You can buy them in most high street stores, Holland and Barrett, Boots, Tesco's. And um, more and more people are becoming familiar with, with the benefits of CBD. Uh, and I think the fact that it's a sort of a natural product, you know, it comes from a plant. Um, I think that appeals to a lot of people rather than, say, chemicals and pharmaceuticals that they may they, they may use for other modern ailments. So is it fair to say that CBD is almost like the aloe vera of cannabis? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I think it's definitely more than just a fad. I think it's, it, you know, a lot of people are, are experiencing huge amounts of benefit from CBD, um, all the way from, you know, minor issues like improving their sleep quality or relaxation all the way to, to very serious issues like um, pain management and inflammation reduction. So I think as more and more people become aware of the properties um, and the way it's being marketed as a sort of food supplement, something for people to consume on a daily basis as part of their, their daily routine, you, you'll probably start to see more and more people taking it and, and being interested in it for, for the range of applications that it has. Talking about it, its classification as a food supplement, uh, 
the CJEU released a judgment earlier last year, if I'm not mistaken, on CBD, specifically in relation to the French cannabis case concerning CBD and the free movement of goods. Yep. Could you explain to our audience a little bit about that case and the importance it had to CBD? Sure. So in France, there was a, a restriction on the type of CBD that you could sell. So their position was you, you shouldn't sell CBD that was extracted from the bud or the flower of the plant, the best bit, basically. You could sell CBD that was extracted from the seed and the stems, but you can't get a lot of CBD from, from those parts of the plants. And the cannabis guys were happily selling vape products and CBD products, which had full plant extract in them, so, so high-quality CBD extract. They ended up being prosecuted by the French, French authorities um, under this law, under this restriction. And, you know, a lot of people would have just folded and given up and gone and done something else. But these guys, they knew what they were doing was positive. They were selling products that actually helped people and, and, and gave a lot of comfort to people. So they took up the fight and uh, they got a great lawyer, Evelyn Van Kimmelen in Paris. And they, they took the case all the way to the, the European Court of Justice. And the, the thrust of their argument was that under EU regulations, freedom of movement of goods, the French law was incompatible with, with EU regulations because, you know, the CBD from extracted from the whole plant was widely available across Europe. And they won. Um, and it was a massive victory. And in fact, the court, the European Court of Justice went further than just finding in their favor. They actually said that of all the evidence they'd seen, there was nothing to support CBD causing a, a public health issue. So, so the French government won couldn't impose that restriction as it contravened freedom of movement of goods. But further than that, there was no public health justification for having that restriction in place. So, so in fact, it was a total victory for the Canavape guys. And, and it's been extremely positive for the, for the hemp and CBD sector as a whole across Europe. So an, an increasing kind of adoption uh, from a landmark uh, court to say that actually CBD is uh, a healthy product that can be used by the public. Yeah, absolutely. So safety is the name of the game here. You know, like I said, CBD companies are marketing their products as a food supplement to be consumed on a daily basis as part of your routine for a long time. Um, so whilst it's all very well saying, you look, it's from a plant, it's natural, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good product, there still needs to be an assessment of whether it's okay to take this product for a long period of time. You know, what are the long-term effects? And um, we've seen the introduction of a novel food regime here in the UK, which is uh, increasing regulatory standards for, um, for CBD products here. Um, but this European decision was, was, was wider than that, in that it's not just a case of increasing the quality of these products. It's an acceptance that CBD doesn't have any long-term issues uh, in relation to public health. There is no evidence to say that it is a threat to public health, which is great because that gives consumer confidence and, and market stability, which is what we all want. And so then we've been talking about all the various benefits that cannabis plants have to offer from medicinal to kind of health and wellness. But Overall, societally, when we say the word cannabis, we have this perception of a bunch of stoners just, you know, sitting on their couch and just, you know, getting lit up. And it's obviously led to this characterization that it's just, it's a drug with no benefits. It's counterproductive. It destroys creativity. It destroys kind of youth. Does cannabis have a PR problem? There is a, a massive stigma still attached to cannabis. And I, I get this, these jokes all the time. You know, when people find out what I do, I get... Don't make a hash of it. Don't be a dope. You know, it's, it's, they think it's funny, but gradually as education about the plant is increasing and being rolled out, um, 
that stigma is starting to fall away. And in fact, I think more and more countries and governments will start to embrace cannabis as something positive and something useful for society. Uh, obviously, cannabis was demonized a uh, hundred years ago or however long when, when glo global prohibition started. And you can, you know, you could have a, a, a whole in-depth webinar on the reasons as to why that happened. But I think everyone is, is starting to realize actually this plant has a, a wealth of benefits health-wise for various medical conditions. Um, and in fact, from, a, from an adult use perspective, it's far less harmful to, than, than say alcohol or cigarettes or, or anything like that, that are, that are licensed products that pe people are trusted to enjoy. So uh, I think gradually that stigma is falling away and, and I'm sure you will um, see people coming around to the idea that, that in fact, this is a very positive industry. You discussed earlier the UK having recently set up a novel food regime, 2014-2015, uh, starting to test the viability of cannabis products in the health and wellness industry. What is the likelihood of increasing adoption in the next five years by UK authorities of cannabinoid products? Well, look, I have to say, I personally think the pandemic um, will only accelerate legalization and regulation of cannabis, not just in the UK, but on a global scale, because governments need job creation and they need tax revenue. And further legitimizing the cannabis sector creates both of those things. You know, it's, it's, it's a no brainer to me. You, you could you could legalize um, adult use cannabis across Europe and create hundreds of thousands of jobs, if not millions of jobs overnight. You could generate billions of pounds of tax revenue. Um, it seems to me that it is inevitable and I hope it happens sooner rather than later. Um, but it's difficult. When, when medical cannabis was legalized in the UK, there was a stellar media campaign which forced the Home Office to change their position. And you may remember it was on the front page of every newspaper. These mothers were going to Holland and places like that to obtain medical cannabis for their children who were unwell. And with it not being legal, as they came back into the UK, the border force was seizing this, this medication and preventing these mothers from giving it to their children. Public opinion swung behind medical cannabis very, very quickly. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who could argue against a mother being able to access medicines um, for their children. So, um, you know, quickly the Home Office acted and in six weeks they did a full review and, and you know, much to everyone's surprise, in November 2018, they legalized medical cannabis here in the UK. In terms of adult use cannabis, I think generally public opinion, the, the majority of people will be in favor, but I wouldn't say it's still a big vote winner for politicians to come out and start lobbying for a full adult use market just yet. But it, you know, ultimately, as, as um, the circumstances change and as the stigma falls away, I think public opinion will, will also swing very hard behind a legal adult use market. So probably not to the extent of, say, the recreational legalization that we're currently seeing in America. I mean, only last night, the New York Times reported that uh, the state of New York reached a preliminary agreement on legalizing recreational marijuana. Yeah. But you would agree that then, at least in the, in the health and wellness industry, the cannabis-based products are only going to be further legitimized and increased in the next coming five years. Yeah, well, what happens in America is incredibly influential. You know, I was in, in America at the end of 2018 and, and, you know, I went to look at some grow facilities there and some dispensaries and some manufacturing facilities. And I thought we'd, I'd get out there and find I was sort of, we were sort of two, three, four years behind them. In fact, it was more like eight, nine, ten years behind where they were. And, um, you know, if you think about being able to go into a dispensary and buy 
adult use cannabis products, vapes, gummies, you know, anything you want. The range of products is astonishing. And to try and think of that happening here in the UK, it seems bizarre. Like you just can't imagine it. But where the US goes, other countries tend to follow. So obviously New York is a massive population. So for them to go fully legal is great. Ultimately, what we are waiting to see is movement at a federal level. So although um, most states in the U.S. have some form of legal cannabis, um, the sale and supply of cannabis is still prohibited at, at a federal level. Uh, once that goes, I think that that's probably when the dominoes will start to fall. If, the, if the, the, the U.S. authorities and the regulators and the big banks are all able to now be involved in the, the cannabis sector, then um, I think Europe won't be far behind in terms of a full adult use market. So, so I hope within five years it will be a very serious conversation here in the UK, um, but I don't know. From a, from a health and wellness perspective, though, the novel food regime completely legitimizes the, the industry. You know, it gives investors, institutional money, um, big retailers a clear route to identifying legal and compliant products. Um, so although Novel Foods has been challenging for the CBD industry, I expect it will be a platform which allows the industry to, to flourish from this point onwards. And do you feel that with the advent of Brexit, this is a advantage for cannabis and CBD or is it a detractor? It's, it's a bit of both, actually. So we're all aware of how well the UK has done with its vaccine rollout. And, and they're, they're, you know, Brexit is a factor, although the, the, the fast vaccine approvals, which were um, issued by the MHRA, were actually done under an EU regulation. Um, it was Brexit that created the political environment for the UK to act unilaterally. So all the other EU member states, they all went in together as a, as a block and allowed the European Medicines Agency to deal with their vaccine approval and their procurement. And, and as we know, it hasn't gone well for them. The UK was able to be nimble and independent. And, um, you know, it's the one good thing that the government got right here in the UK is, is their, their vaccine strategy. Brexit and, and the UK's ability to now diverge from Europe and act unilaterally and independently should give um, the UK an advantage in terms of creating a really favourable jurisdiction um, to do cannabis business in. And that's and the novel food regime is an, is an example of that. By having a clear route to novel food compliance, the UK now becomes the most desirable location in Europe to do CBD business, which is great. The flip side to that is most companies will not be here just on a UK strategy. It will be a European strategy. Strategy. So they don't just want to sell to the UK. UK is a really attractive jurisdiction, wealthy population, um, you know, big population. But Europe is right on the doorstep and you've got another 500, 600 million people that, they, that companies will want to sell to. And so where Brexit creates the problem is the, the, the transit of goods, the border disruption that we've seen, the, the customs declarations that now have to be made, the, the, the tariffs and the duties which can be imposed if your product is not sourced from the UK or the EU. Uh, and this has caused a huge amount of disruption for UK companies that export to the EU. And similarly for, for EU companies that want to export uh, to sell into the UK. So it, it's it's been good in terms of the UK's ability to diverge and, and create a clear route to compliance, but it's been absolutely uh, a complete disaster in terms of being able to export products into the EU. And, it, and it's, um, it's a real shame, I think, in that respect. Yeah. So adding to the general kind of chaos that's happening in, you know, Calais and the truckers kind of moving between the UK and the EU. Of course. Yeah. 
because the UK used to be a good jumping off spot to sell into the whole of Europe. You know, companies would want to come to the UK because it had a stable financial environment, you know, it had a good infrastructure. You build your base of operations in the UK and then you could export to the whole of Europe from there. Now that won't happen. You know, no company, no North American company or South American company or an Asian company or a Chinese company will use the, the UK as their their base of operations for the EU. They'll likely have a small base of operations in the UK to sell to the UK customers, but their main headquarters will be based in the EU so that they can satisfy all of their EU customers from one place. And is, it, is there any country in the EU or is the EU as a whole developing any kind of comparable novel food regime uh, that gives that clear regulation path to, to regulatory approval for cannabis companies? So in fact, the novel food regime is an, is an EU regime. So, so in fact, the, it's the EU that created the, the novel food regime. That Where the, the UK has, has done well is they've, they've, they've mirrored that regime, but they've set a, a timetable for compliance and, and, and they've given clear information on what they expect to see from CBD companies that want to sell in the UK. The European Commission position um, is very, very unclear. Although all EU member states are supposed to abide by these, these novel food regulations, enforcement of them is devolved to the individual member states. And some countries are enforcing and some aren't. So um, it's very, very unclear in Europe about how to be completely compliant. And in fact, um, technically, all of the CBD products being sold in Europe are not legal because you need full marketing authorization under the novel food regulations to be able to sell legally. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, although there is a big CBD market in, in Europe and there are many countries where CBD is very popular, it's still very unclear as to um, how to be completely compliant. Uh, so so that, that's where the issue arises. And talking about compliance, you said earlier on in this interview that your job is advising, say, CBD companies and other kind of pharmaceutical companies on CBD products. Typically, law is characterized as a risk-averse industry. You know, people come to you for certainty, but you're operating in a market and an industry which inherently is nascent. It's filled with risk. It's filled with uncertainty. So how... How does that feel and, and how do you reconcile that? You know, the, the role of a lawyer is being kind of, you know, the risk avoider and the certainty maker with the inherent chaotic nature and certainty of a new industry. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because, uh, as you say, as lawyers, we are naturally risk averse. So if you see a grey area, your, your urge is to shy away from it and to tell your client, no, 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 you can't do this. Unfortunately, that doesn't work in an industry like cannabis because... Everything that is being done is being done for the first time. So there's no case precedents to follow. There's no high court judgments to look at. Um, and ultimately, these companies won't want to deal with a lawyer that just says no, 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 no to them all the time because they won't get anywhere. And, and the reason why they like this industry is because they are first movers. There is huge growth potential. So what you have to do in order to, to help your companies be successful is to, to give your advice um, in a very sort of commercially minded way. So rather than saying yes or no to what they want to do, I try to categorize their position in terms of the risk level because all of these, all of these companies, they have a certain appetite for risk. Cannabis is a risk sector because it is new and because the regulatory environment is underdeveloped. So rather than say yes or no, it's okay, what you're doing is high risk. And the risk being regulatory intervention or sometimes even police intervention. But here is the advice I can give you in order to mitigate your risk position and, and put yourself on a low risk profile. 
as long as you are very clear that there is no real way to operate in this sector on a zero risk profile, most companies are happy with that. They understand that. And you are protected because you, you're giving guidance and advice, but there's, you know, there's no guarantees that something won't go wrong. Um, but yeah, it, it, sometimes it's tough because you, know, you sometimes have to stick your neck on the line and say, right, okay, this is difficult, but I'm going to try and help you find a solution. And that's what I think my clients appreciate. I'm trying to work with them to help their businesses be successful and grow. Um, and sometimes that means um, helping them through those difficult gray areas and navigating these complex regulatory issues. But yeah, no, occasionally I do have a sleepless night when I'm thinking about how to approach something. Yeah, it does happen sometimes. <laughs> I can imagine you just kind of dreaming, just thinking, okay, well, what's the, what's the, what's the approach to do? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> but I can also imagine equally as it is stressful, it must be thrilling. The idea that you are, say, a pioneer when it comes to the UK cannabis industry and you are paving the way by advising all these first timers and newcomers. Yeah, I mean, it's a ex- really exciting industry and I love my job. Um, and I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate, you know, to, to have been in a position to really commit to the sector and to try and build a profile as well has been great. And and I genuinely look. There were days when I think, okay, this could all end tomorrow. You know, it could all be taken away. But most of the time, the vast majority of the time, I still feel like we're we're still at the beginning of this. You know, the potential growth for this sector is is massive, absolutely massive. And focusing on the regulations is 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 just right for me. You know, they, there are other lawyers active in the cannabis sector, but I would say they're far more involved on the corporate commercial side of things. You know, they want to do the big transactional work. You saw last last month three three cannabis companies listed on the stock market on the on the London Stock Exchange, and they they received a massive massive reception, um, which was great. So obviously, the, the big transactional work is very lucrative, and that's the kind of work that law firms always want to do. Um, but the regulatory work is actually a really good entry point for these these companies into a firm. So they come to me for the regulatory advice. I help them with those, those those regulatory issues. And then the next question is, Robert, right now we need our distribution contracts done. We need to trademark our our you know our, our logo and and you know we need you to we need someone to review the lease on this manufacturing facility that we're going to to take over. So so the work comes to me and then I'm able to distribute it throughout the firm. So so yeah, it's um it's it's such an exciting industry to be involved in. Um, and I think people underestimate the fact that the companies that are active in that sector, they're just like any other companies. They need they need loads of legal support, both regulatory and commercial. So uh, I'm very busy at the moment as the regulations continue to develop and I don't really see that changing for the foreseeable future. Do you have to be an expert in the kind of the science behind cannabis to to be able to understand the regulatory process it's it's very helpful um it's very helpful because the clients want to speak to someone that understands cannabis if you are dealing with a lawyer on a particular issue and they're having to ask you very basic questions what's the difference between hemp and marijuana what's the difference between cbd and thc the clients don't really want to have to explain everything to you do you know what i mean so 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 they want to deal with someone that understands the sector um because because it just makes makes their lives much easier when they don't have to sort of explain everything from from scratch um and and uh, you know you can only you can you, you see the problem with cannabis as i said there's no case precedents there's no high court judgments there isn't a great deal of material out there that you can go and read and swat up on the industry you have to actually do it you know you have to actually practice it and learn from the day-to-day experiences so it's been incredibly fun 
learning everything about the cannabis industry, but I can tell you it took a very long time. I'd say probably nine months of talking to my clients every day, speaking to everyone within the industry. It's only at that point I felt comfortable saying, yes, okay, I feel like an expert in this sector. So, so, so yes, it's, it's been a lot of hard work. So basically nine months in order to get your MD in, in cannabis science. Yeah, I look, uh, again, every day I'm learning something new. Every day I'm finding out something new. Um, and that's and that's my approach to 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 this industry. So you have to speak to everyone. You have to speak to all of the businesses because if you haven't had personal experience of something, it's likely another business will have. And that's how you learn about these things, um, listening to people and, and listening to the right people. That's that's all I do is I take all the information I get and then I mix it up and make it look like my own opinion and then and I say very wise <laughs> and, and very knowledgeable. But it, it's just information I've received from other extremely knowledgeable people in the sector. And where is it that you want to see kind of your role in the cannabis industry going? Because on the one hand, you've got the substantive law, so the regulatory process and that body of law developing. But on the other hand, you hint at the growing amount of work that comes with these cannabis companies, you know, the IP, the IPOs, the transactional work, any other kind of corporate work. Would you like to be kind of a specialist, you know, exclusively focused on the developing substantive law? Or would you like to be more of a generalist having kind of that full service package, but for the cannabis industry, or practice area exclusively. There are days when I wish I was a corporate commercial lawyer. You know, there's so much corporate commercial work involved that um, I wish I could do it myself, but that's not my area of expertise. Thankfully, I have amazing colleagues at INS. You know, the corporate commercial team there are fantastic. Um, they really take into the industry. So now I'm very comfortable in, in working alongside them and making sure that my clients have full regulatory and commercial support. What I've always tried to do is set goals. You know, I think I think as a lawyer, it's good to in your career progression, it's good to set yourself a target. So one of the targets I set myself was to become a partner at a at an international firm, and and thankfully last year INS came along and gave me that opportunity, and it's been fantastic. The next goal I set myself was I wanted to want to take one of my clients to an IPO to 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 the capital markets, you know, to list on a stock exchange. And um, although it wouldn't be me doing the legal work on that, because that's not my area of expertise, when you've been dealing with a client for, for two, three, four years, you are helping them through the growth cycle of a company. So they may be a startup, they may be a, a new company on the block. Ultimately, what these companies want to do is grow their grow their business, take on more employees, up until maybe an exit becomes available, and that may be being acquired by, uh, you know, an even bigger company. We saw a couple of weeks ago, Emac Life Sciences was acquired by Curaleaf in the US for $285 million. So that's fantastic for the Emac um, team and their shareholders as well. So, so that might be the exit being acquired by a bigger company or a listing on the stock market. You know, so so we saw uh, Cannabo Research from Israel list on the London Stock Exchange last month. We saw um, MGC Pharmaceuticals from Australia list on the stock market. And that's when your client realizes the um, financial benefits of their hard work. So they, you know, they've, they've set up this company. It's been blood, sweat and tears 24-7 for the last three, four years. And then all of a sudden, here you go, there's 20 million in your pocket. There's 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 50 million. Your company is now worth 100 million dollars on the on the stock market. And that's when you say, right, okay, all of that hard work was worth it. So to be a part of that and to help your client through that growth cycle, it's a real buzz. And and ultimately, the exit is the culmination of all that hard work for them, but also for you for for the assistance you've been giving them. 
Would you say that's been your highlight moment on the job so far? Uh, well, I, I was I I wasn't uh, acting for Emac. I would love to say I was. We we had a very small role in it, but but yeah, um, we are currently. Um, I have a few clients who I think are going to be, you know, very rich people in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. I can't say any more than that. But yes, it will be it will be an absolute pinnacle to, you know, to, to do that, to achieve that in sort of four years since I started. This will be amazing. When you're working with clients and advising them on the regulatory process, how do you characterize your relationship with uh, regulators in this space? Is it kind of adversarial? Is it kind of, you know, cooperative? Because on the one hand, you know, you both are dealing with an industry and practice area that has no precedent. So on the one hand, you could be characterizing it as, okay, let's work together to build a market and a practice area that is certain. On the other hand, it can feel a lot like David and Goliath in terms of cannabis businesses trying to get into the market and having to face the scrutiny of the regulator. Is either correct or both true in a certain sense? There's a bit of both. So, so ultimately, you are trying to achieve the best result for your client. Sometimes it might be the carrot. Sometimes it might be the stick. So um, your, your clients will want to have a good relationship with the regulators so if there's a problem usually the best approach is to engage and say oh we're very sorry about this we want to be a compliant company please help us you know we'll make these changes and and then hopefully you will be happy and in most circumstances if you if you have that amicable approach with the regulators if you say we are willing to make changes in order to keep you happy you'll get your green tick and they'll move on to something else but at the same time your clients don't want someone who is afraid of the regulators. You know, if, if the regulators are being unreasonable or or maybe um, their action is disproportionate to what's happened, you have to be prepared to fight. And I think that's something I always encourage my clients is not to be afraid of regulatory intervention. In cannabis, regulatory intervention is going to happen. You are going to brush up against the regulators at some point. It's inevitable. It's about turning that situation, which may seem you know, incredibly frightening, frightening and distressing at the time into a positive. Um, one of my clients calls it free consultancy. So, you know, you can pay a consultants a thousand pounds an hour to give you advice on something. Whereas if the regulators come and knock on your door and say, well, what's going on here? That's your opportunity to get advice from them for free. You know what I mean? So you so rather than say, you know, panicking and saying, oh my God, I've had this nasty letter, use that as an opportunity to, to find out what it is is going to make them happy, what it is you need to do to be compliant, implement those changes. And more, more often than not, the regulators will have other things to be getting on with and they'll leave you alone after that. All right. So definitely about thinking proactively when the regulators do come knocking down your door. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you, you want to mitigate your risk and manage manage these situations, but at the same time, if if it if something does go wrong, if something does happen, use that opportunity to to change something and, and and make things better. So talking about opportunities, what got you into cannabis law? Because as you stated before, you weren't always in the cannabis law game. No, I was a criminal defense lawyer for about twelve years. Um so I started off in, in legal aid doing doing, you know, really interesting stuff, all the, the sex and the violence and the drugs and that sort of thing. Um and I, I trained at um a, a, a notoriously dodgy criminal legal aid firm in, in Tottenham. And, um, I, you know, doing legal aid work was amazing. You know, the cases were amazing. But at some point you're like, okay, uh, I'm probably never going to earn any money doing this. And that's not why people do legal aid work. They do it for the passion of it. But I thought at some point, okay, 
I'd like to um, I'd like to try and move away from legal legal aid work and into sort of more privately funded work. The, the financial crime, the fraud cases, that sort of thing. So I left um, the legal aid firm I was at at the time, and I went and studied a, fin- uh, a master's degree in financial regulation and compliance. And I studied it part-time at BPP, and at the same time, I was working for a charity called Release. Um, and Release is a drugs and human rights charity based in Shoreditch, and they campaign for the decriminalization of drug possession. They think drug use should be a public health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. So whilst I was on their legal team for those couple of years, I was doing lots of lobbying work and policy work, and there was legalization was rolling out across the U.S., and I was writing articles about it. I'm actually born on 420 as well, which is a sort of international cannabis day. So um, I kind of felt there was maybe maybe it was meant to be. But <laughs> just this idea came into my head. Cannabis is going to be big business in, in Europe one day. You know, there wasn't any sort of legal cannabis at that time in, in, in Europe. And I thought it's, in, it's inevitable. Look at what's happening in the US, the green rush over there. It's going to happen here. So when I um, finished my master's degree, I went back into private practice and I started to do much more privately funded criminal defense work. This idea of cannabis regulation and and a cannabis cannabis law department just wouldn't leave me alone. So um, so I I decided three years ago, I set up the, the UK's first dedicated cannabis law department. And things just really sort of snowballed from there. You know, I, I couldn't have imagined that it would have been as successful as it has been. Immediately, I was inundated with work from the CBD industry at that time. My my timing was very good because six months later, the Home Office suddenly legalized medicinal cannabis, much to everyone's surprise. And so from, from about the end of 2018, that's when I made the decision just to focus on cannabis regulation. So I do still do a bit of um, criminal defense work. And, and of course, there is some crossover. You know, there, there are some companies who are really pushing the boundaries and, and they find themselves in hot water with the police or, or, or the authorities. Um, but yes, it was, it was the best decision I ever made because as much as I enjoyed criminal law, the market is quite saturated. You know, there's fantastic criminal lawyers out there. There's fantastic criminal law firms out there. So you're in a very, very competitive field, whereas cannabis is new and there aren't too many cannabis regulatory lawyers around. So, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a good decision. And, and so far, no regrets. You decided to dip into a new pond only to find out that it was going to be even more lucrative as months came. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a massive punt. You know, there's a lot of risk involved. Um, and you know, long may it continue. I, 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 when I when I was training at this firm in Tottenham, I could never have dreamed of being a partner at an international law firm. And and to do with cannabis, just makes it that that much sweeter. I think. Talking about kind of starting your decision uh, about setting up a cannabis law department, what made you do it at your firm, and and how were you able to kind of convince your firm to take that on, as opposed to say, I'm going to start my own cannabis law firm. So my previous firm was very, very good at marketing, and it's and it's something that I think uh, a lot of law firms are are lacking. And the expectation was that everybody does marketing, whether you are a trainee solicitor or, or even a paralegal or an admin staff, right up to equity partners. Everyone has to do marketing, and I think this is something that lawyers sometimes are not educated on at an early stage, how important it is to market yourself, to build your profile, to build a network, to have a following. You know, um, it's all very well being a good lawyer and being able to deal with cases very well. But if you want to progress, you've got to be able to bring that work in too. So um, it turned out 
prior to that, I'd never really done any marketing for myself. I was a case handler. You know, nobody knew who I was. I didn't really have any profile. I wasn't expected to bring in work. I just was working on the cases that were given to me. It turns out I was actually very good at marketing, not just myself, but the firm as well, and building those connections and building that network and raising my own profile in person and on, you know, LinkedIn and that sort of thing. And um, it was that that sort of propelled me into where I am now, being able to sort of market myself and market the firm and attract high quality work was was invaluable you know that's what firms want you know particularly at a higher level a senior associate or a partner level you have to be able to bring bring work in and um and and that's where being able to market yourself well and make those connections will, will, will stand you in good stead for your future career and so how did you convince the partners that cannabis law was as lucrative as value as you they, they didn't they didn't actually take much convincing to be honest as i said you know marketing was really important and if you can make a business case for something and you can say right this is an area of work that we think is untapped or, or here is an opportunity to, to bring more work into the firm no no firm is going to say no to that obviously there are there were reputational concerns um but the the view was um the the potential benefits of being involved in the industry and the potential work that could be created from it far outweighed any any reputational issues that may be attached to it and ins as a firm has 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 explored these areas already before they took me on ins is known for its big shipping practice you know other legacy practices in aviation energy oil and gas you know really traditional stuff um but a few years ago, they decided to set up a gaming and gambling practice, a regulatory practice for casinos and betting companies. And it's been incredibly successful. We act for huge casinos, um, companies applying for casino licenses, big betting companies. It's been a real success going out there and looking for nascent industries, new, new areas to, to practice in. And I think that's what encouraged them to, to take a gamble on me and bring me on. And, 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 you know, they came to me and said, look, we've seen what you've done in a very short space of time building this big practice. We think cannabis is really a really interesting area. We think it's sustainable. We think this is something we want to be involved in. And I have to say, I was surprised that a firm like INTS actually was so open to that. But, you know, they've been fantastic. The firm has taken to it completely. There's been no, no restriction on what I'm able to do. Um, and I think they agree that that was probably a good decision, you know, because, because now we have a real sort of presence in the, in the sector and, and we're very, very busy with cannabis work, which is great. It sounds like when it talks about the important skills a lawyer should develop, be it in the cannabis sector or generally, is this idea of, of marketing, but also of entrepreneurship, kind of taking initiative, both which I seem to take from, from your answers are underdeveloped at, say, kind of legal curriculums, be it the LPC or the LLB. What is your opinion on these, kind of their importance, and how do law students go about developing them? I would say 50% of what I do now is marketing, is marketing and business development. And it's not just a case of going out there looking for new clients. It's also developing that relationship with your existing clients, you know? So um, this is really, really important, building that relationship of trust with your clients, um, building the profile within the industry to be recognized as someone who knows what they're talking about. I wish I'd been educated on these at an earlier stage. I wish I'd been told how important it was to go out there and market yourself, to meet people, have coffee meetings, go to events, because I had no idea. I had no idea. And, and yes, look, every firm needs lawyers that will, 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 will grind out the casework and do a good job. Obviously, um, the best marketing you can have for yourself is being competent and doing a good job for your clients. But 
at some stage that's not enough it's all very well being able to write good letters and nice emails and obviously that's a very important aspect of what lawyers do um, but if you want to really sort of push on to the upper stages of the industry you've got to be able to generate work for your firm and you can only do that by marketing yourself marketing the firm um, and, and building those connections where people you know when they speak to someone else and they say oh by the way do you know a good lawyer you are their first port of call and, and I think that's something that you know lawyers need to take into account as they want to progress their career it's really really important to get out there and get your face recognized so we talk about uh, marketing uh, specifically in relation to personal branding is what I'm getting here. The idea that clients should get to know your brand and you should build the value of that brand in the practice area or industry that you're working in. Currently, law students uh, are under the, the stigma and the perception that unless you went to a Russell Group University or unless you're working for the magic circles or the big American firms of the world, that you don't really have a strong personal brand and ergo you can't really make it uh, as a successful lawyer. Now, we've already had previous conversations as that, you know, the fallacy in this. How do you think that this idea or myth bears reality in the legal industry? And what are the real, you know, values of branding and marketing that students should be focusing on? Well, obviously, good grades are important. And I can tell you, I'm not proud of it, but my grades were terrible. You know, I, I, did, I didn't do very well at my A-levels. I got a 2-2 uh, for my degree. And anyone applying for training contracts or, or associate positions or anything like that will know that a 2-2 is devastating in some respects. But, um, you, you know, it closes a lot of doors. So, so I thought very carefully about, right, what can I do to address this issue? And that was one of the main reasons I went and did that master's degree, because I thought, well, if people are going to look at my CV and see a 2-2 and reject me, I need something else to trump that. So I went and got a distinction from BPP for that. For that. And, and, then, and then I think that was good because I could sort of highlight that on my CV rather than focusing on the, the, the Desmond. But ultimately, as your career progresses, your grades become less important. And, you know, law firms who are interviewing uh, for, for, for new positions, yes, they will still look at your grades and, and your, your achievements, but they will also look at your commercial value to the firm. So if you can, if you can say, look, I did £300,000, I brought in £300,000 of work to my, my firm last year, they don't care about what A-levels you've got or which university you went to, you know? If you could say, I, I, you know, I did quarter of a million last year, I'm expecting to do half a million next year, most firms will snap you up straight away. Um, and then if you can build up a practice where you are doing, you know, 750,000 in a year or even a million, you can go to any firm that you want to in the whole country. So, so yes, obviously, um, I wish I'd studied harder and I wish I'd done better with my grades and I wish I'd gone to a better university. But thankfully, uh, I, I did what I could to address those issues in the immediate term. And then being in a position where I generate a lot of work and bring in a lot of fees um, effectively puts you in a position where the university you went to is irrelevant or the grades that you got is irrelevant um, because, because you know, you're bringing in work to the firm and ultimately that's what, that's what they want. So being kind of a go-getter, can-do attitude really does help, especially in the development of your career. Since we spoke last time, I've been thinking about this, and um, I always say, oh, I've been very lucky. At each stage of my career, I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky. But in fact, sort of looking back on things, 
I've realized what I was doing is I was setting myself a goal at each stage. So the first stage is, right, I want to qualify as a solicitor. So you take your training contract wherever you can get it and you work hard and you qualify. The next goal was like, right, okay, well, I'd like to move to a bigger criminal legal aid firm with a, with a better reputation. And then, you know, I was able to achieve that. Then the next stage was, I don't want to do legal aid work anymore. I want to do privately funded work. So I was able to achieve that. And then it was, uh, you know, uh, the goal was, I would like to become a partner at a good firm. And, and so, in fact, I think sort of with more of a review, setting those achievable goals has actually resulted in me making good decisions along the way. So, yes, you, maybe you make your own luck in some respects, but that's it. You've got to, you've got to sort of break it down into bite-sized chunks and make reach for something achievable in, in, in sort of two, three-year stages. And it doesn't necessarily mean you move, you move from firm to firm to achieve those goals. You can do that, that within one firm, but I think having that well-defined goal that is achievable and then moving on from there is, is great. So, so this is what I've done. You know, I wanted to be a partner at an international law firm, and I've achieved that. So, as I said, my next goal is to take a client to an IPO, to, to, a, to, a, to a listing on the stock market. And hopefully, I will achieve that in the next couple of years, too. So what words of inspiration do you have to law students currently who say had plans, but their plans have been put into disarray because of the pandemic? You know, you can't go and grab a coffee or go to a lot of as many insight events as you might have been able to prior to the pandemic. So law students now, they see the job market. They thought, oh, damn, it was competitive very much so before the pandemic. Now it's even more competitive because there are less places being offered. What words of inspiration do you have to law students and law graduates in this position who feel the doom and gloom of the future prospects of their career? Yeah, I can imagine trying to find a job at the moment, trying to get a training contract is incredibly tough. Um, things will improve. You know, we're moving towards things unlocking, and I have no doubt that the legal sector is going to be booming in six to 12 months, you know, and there's going to be people, companies hiring left, right, and center. That's my genuine belief. Having good grades and good academics and having gone to a good university is great. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really, really important. If I could go back and speak to my 18-year-old self, I'd say stop being so interested in beer and girls and actually, you know, read your books and stuff like that and go to lectures. Um, but at the same time, you've got to find something, an area which you think is is something you can grow into. And, and you know, there are long-term prospects in it, uh, something you are passionate about. And trust me, physical events are going to come back in a big way. In the cannabis sector, there are so many great conferences and networking events, and we've really missed it the last year. You know, it's such a big part of the industry. You meet, you meet all the same people, you meet new people. It's a great place to build up a network and, and, and pick up work and that sort of thing. Um, these events will come back in a big way. And it's really important for, for young lawyers to, to, to try and find out, right, okay, I'm interested in corporate commercial work or financial regulation or criminal defense or, or cannabis or whatever it is. Start looking, well, what events are there that I can go to? Can I register for these free events and turn up? And yes, you'll get a, a, probably a few free drinks and some food, but also you'll actually start to meet people um, and build those connections and swap business cards. And then the next time someone says to you, oh, do you know a lawyer that can do this? You reach out to that person and then they owe you a favor. You know what I mean? It's, it's about getting your face out there, making those connections, keeping in touch and, and, and continuing to build those relationships. So if you haven't, if you know, if you met someone at a, an event, follow up with them. You fancy a coffee next week or should we grab a beer after work um, 
and you'd be surprised how quickly uh, you can you can build a very strong relationship, a mutually beneficial one as well. They'll be happy to help you, and you'll probably be able to do things to help them at some point. So, in other words, law students and law graduates should you know stay stay on course, stay motivated, get those business uh, cards printed, get their suits dry cleaned just <laughs> in case for the next event, just to be ready to jump back in. These things are these things are very very important, um, but at the same time, no one at any level should feel that oh I shouldn't go to these events you know I'm not senior enough no one's going to want to speak to me no one if you are interested in something if you are knowledgeable about something go to these events go and speak to people you know because um, yes you may not get any work from them now. But one day, five years down the line, you may have kept that relationship or you may bump into them again and they say, oh, by the way, maybe I've got something I can help you out with. Um, so the sooner you start, the bigger your network will be. Fantastic. Now, Rob, I usually like to end these uh, interviews off with a bit of a fun question round. So you talked a lot about your passion for you know, criminal law and also kind of cannabis law and the cannabis industry. What's one subject or a group of subjects in law school, which you hated with a passion, which you couldn't wait to, you know, close the door on. So in my, um, in my first year, it might be my second year. I think it was my second year. I went into my equity and trust exam and I didn't actually know what a trust was. Um, <laughs> and I tried that trick where I thought, well, I'll just learn the easy bits around the edges rather than actually understanding what was going on. And, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully get enough to pass, and I didn't, so I had to refit it. <laughs> um, some 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 topics are just not going to be interesting, and and some are always going to be very sexy. Where we had a uh, at my university, we had a great criminal evidence lecturer, and she always talked about sexy sexy laws, and and it was like you know the, the whole criminal evidence is fantastic. You know when you go through all the case law and the the interesting things and uh, you know that's a great subject to teach um my equity and trust lawyer was uh, lecture was very boring but maybe it was just a boring subject i don't know if it's possible to make equity equity and equity and trust interesting so um but there must be people out there that do find it interesting so so yeah do, if you are going to go and do an, uh, a module in equity and trust do do learn what a trust actually is because you've probably got a better chance of passing yeah, I mean, equity and trust does have a massive PR problem. It's uh, for, for most people I talk to, it seems to be most resoundingly the nightmare subject uh, yeah. of the law degree. Yeah, I mean, landlord is was was tough for me. You know, I didn't enjoy that either. Um, but there we go. You know, there you go. You got to you, you got to find subjects which you find sexy exactly. and uh, exactly. lean into them. Exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Rob, uh, for coming on today. If any of our audiences uh, have any more questions and want to reach out to you, uh, can they? And if so, how? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm quite active on LinkedIn. Um, I try not to make it about me. I'm, you know, I'm always commenting on what's going on in the cannabis sector and trying to post updates and give my knowledge. Um, so please feel free to connect. Send me a message. Um, and um, you know, if you have an interest in cannabis, then like I said, there are going to be lots of events starting up very soon. Um, I'm happy to point people in the right directions of, of where they should be going, who they should be speaking to. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rob. No, thank you, Max. Thanks for having me. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about cannabis law and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Robert. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Waddell for scripting the show notes and blog posts, and Matt Gadrich for the absolute bang of a theme song. 
Enjoying Legal Tea? Well, we want to hear from you. What areas would you like us to explore? What topics would you like us to brew up? Give us a shout on our social media platforms at LegalTea.uk or send us an email at hello at LegalTea.uk to spill us your tea. Till next time.